Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversants are Marcus and Susan Evans, who are both psychological therapists who have spent time at the Tavistock Clinic in the United Kingdom. The Tavistock Clinic has a portion of its resources devoted to the GIDS, or Gender Identity Development Services. And over their time there, both Marcus and Susan witnessed a growing, alarming trend of fast-tracking children, specifically, into medical transition. They both acted in the role of whistleblowers and have subsequently experienced the fallout of going public with such criticism. They also have a book out called Gender Dysphoria, which is a manual targeted at therapists and professionals, but is also accessible to parents and other concerned adults about gender dysphoria within youth and how to deal with it and better understanding its manifestation and various ways of approaching it therapeutically. In this conversation, we talk about gender as it relates to society, as well as to psychology. And we also get into the nitty gritty bits of their psychological profession. They're both wonderful guests to speak to. And I had a lot of fun here. So without further ado, here is Marcus and Susan Evans. How long are we going to talk for, roughly, approximately? Uh, roughly uh, an hour, but you know, more or less, it really depends on the interview and, and how oh. things are going and yeah. how upset I make the guest or bored they are of me and my questions, you know, so just feel okay. it out, just feel it out. Yeah, we might be a bit boring, I think, but... <laughs> You know, I was speaking with an insider. I don't want to give too many details away because it was kind of in confidence, but I was speaking with an insider connected with Tavistock, and he was saying that, or they were saying that the closure isn't, it's not like a full closure of the Tavistock. The Tavistock was uh, doing a lot more than just gender stuff, and the gender aspect kind of just fell into the lap of Tavistock and then kind of grew from there. And the closing of that is it, nobody knows what's going to happen. It's just going to kind of go to other places. And it seemed very opaque where the gender therapy in the UK connected to the, uh, the health services there is going to go. It's just kind of up in the air. Opaque. Yeah. I mean, people outside because of this controversy, they think that the Tavistock, is the gender clinic, but as you say, it's not actually. It's Avastop is known. It's the National Health Service Psychotherapy Training Institution. And actually the gender clinic was a very late arrival and a bit sort of out of keeping because most of the pre previous hundred years Tavistop's been around was about psychological therapies. Um, so uh, then to have a service that some, suddenly treats people 
um, chemically. It was very, it was sort of out of place, but it was also a latecomer. So, and when did you two start uh, specializing in gender? And I guess, could you give a little like background on the history of your, uh, your therapies and. Uh... Okay. Yeah. I, so my, background because we're slightly different my background was originally in in what we call general nursing so real nursing <laughs> and then i i did a training a shortened training in mental health nursing what used to be called psychiatric nursing and then i started to work in mental health services different specialties and then became interested in psychoanalytic psychotherapy and understanding that really I, I I kind of reached a stage where I felt that talking therapies were probably going to have a bit more longevity than drugs alone. Not that I don't think medication has a place in mental health work, but uh, so that I think they can be a good combination. But um, yeah, so I, I came to it that way. And what happened was um, Marcus was working at the Tavistock before me in the in the adult department and had been there for quite a while but then I took a job there and very soon after I arrived there which was probably about 2003 there was a post a part-time post uh, on the JIDS so I applied for that and got that so I worked there up until about early 2007 um, so I had a short period working within that service. But then obviously throughout our careers, we've worked with patients with identity issues. We've worked with adolescents on inpatient units, outpatient settings, families. You know, I've done a lot of work with mothers and babies. So, I, you know, our kind of experience has been spread quite wi- widely. And I always say, I kind of feel that although people kind of focus or work in in gender identity or in identity work or with adolescents in this area um i actually not sure we have got any experts yet because i think you know between the experts there's widely differing opinions and no one seems to really want to get together and and develop a true evidence base to what what could be expert knowledge in this area so that might be slightly contentious to say but i so i don't yeah Mm. yeah i mean i don't know how much detail to go into but basically i was a psychiatric nurse being in psychiatry for full over 40 years i i worked at the maudsley i did a training at the tavistock this is back in the 80s and like Sue, I've, I've worked in all sorts of areas, used to run a parasuicide service in an accident emergency department. And then I was sort of headhunted from the Maudsley um, to, to go to the Tavistock and to start a, a discipline there. And so I was part of the management of the Tavistock, I was part of the management of the Tavistock for about 20 years and then did as, uh, trained as a psychoanalyst. And my main interest was in the application of psychoanalytic ideas into psychiatry. In fact, that's what I was sort of known for. But as Sue says, you come across people who've transitioned um, over a long period of time, uh, work with them, see them after they've taken overdoses, etc. I'm going back to the 1980s now. 
And then I was the head of the adult and adolescent department in the Tavistock. As, as I say, it's this big place, this big psychotherapy training institution of which JIDS is a part. Um, so in a way, I got to hear about, I mean, Sue used to come home and talk about the JIDS service and then probably it's best of you sort of carry on. And can we just oh. define JIDS yeah. just for sake of yeah. the audience? So it was the Gender Identity Development Service. So okay. it was actually when I was originally there, it was, it was GIDU, Gender Identity Development Unit. And before that, I think it was Gender Identity Disorder. But I, anyway, when I got there, it was development um and uh, yeah it, it so that was a very small so at the time i started working there this was the only unit for all referrals for children under the age of 18 with gender identity issues um so it's what you call a tier four service the referrals came from throughout the uk and we were a team i think of about seven people and we never received more than 100 per year. So it was usually around 70, 80 per year. Um, and, and mostly boys or males? Mostly boys, not not exclusively, but a, a larger majority were boys. And some had had quite a sort of um, a long history from earlier in their childhood of kind of and and again this contentious words whatever i say it will be the wrong thing but sort of you know gender non-conforming behaviors you know preferences for for feminine dress or playing with dolls and liking the color pink all the sort of stereotypical things yeah. so yeah um yeah and but but obviously it was a very small unit in fact it was so small we didn't even really have a home in the the Tavistock and we used to try and uh, uh, sort of lodge in the Portman Clinic um, but but then we, we we moved to a shop along the road <laughs> and it was uh, a, 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 an old shop that had been rented by a fashion company and we literally went in there after they moved out and we had a kind of upstairs and a downstairs floor um, and that was the unit very small mm -hmm. But then obviously I had a lot of concerns working there and I've kind of told this story a lot of times, but a few weeks after I got there, I remember listening to a case in a clinical presentation. And what you normally do in, in, in mental health work in clinical teams, you, you get a referral in and the team would sit together and listen to the referral letter from the doctor and then have a think about what might be going on and then consider who's most appropriate to take that person on and who's interested to work with them. And then they would carry out some form of uh, assessment work in therapy, which is what I was used to at the Tavistock. And then the team would come back together to consider future steps. So when I went to the clinic, that's sort of what I was expecting. But I listened to this case of a 16-year-old boy, and I remembered the details from it because it was one of the first ones I'd listened to. And then a colleague went away with that. And then not very long later came back and said, okay, I'm going to refer this boy to the endocrine clinic for puberty blockers. 
And that was like one of those moments, I call it a jaw drop moment or a heart sink moment, because I, I kind of said, oh, can I just ask sort of how many times you've seen him? Because we were only a few months down the line and I knew that most of our patients we were only seeing once every three or four weeks because of distances they were travelling to the clinic from all over the country. And she, so she said, yeah, four times. And I, I, I was just shocked at that point that an adolescent whose history I'd listened to, whose background I'd heard a bit about, whose presentation I'd heard in that first clinical meeting, you know, was deemed assessed enough sufficiently to go on um, for a medicalised route. And it, 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 it felt really uncomfortable for me because okay. what I, yeah, Go on, what were you going to say? Well, uh, I'm just I'm trying to get context because it seems like the treatment of gender is different than other sorts of issues. And I'm just trying to figure out why gender, why is gender treated differently than other things? Like if, if uh, I guess depression, if you see a kid who's suicidal four times, you probably want to get him on some sort of antipsychotic drug. I could understand like a kind of a fast track in that way. The gender thing doesn't seem like the same thing as life life threatening depression, but it seems to be treated as urgently. Is that true? Or? Well, there's, there's something you see in psychiatry, you, as you say, you're used to all sorts of people with all sorts of beliefs, and some of them need sort of urgent attention. And you you might give antipsychotics or antidepressants or ECT because you're trying to change their mental state. Obviously, there's the biochemistry of the brain and one thing or another, but you're, you're not fundamentally trying to say, you know, there's a problem with the mind. I mean, there are genetics, and we don't really understand how the mind and the body sort of interact. But you're trying to treat a psychological problem psychologically, even if you're treating them biochemically. Okay. This is a treatment... Um, that is a psychological presentation, but you're aiming to treat the body, as it were. You know, the child says, I've got a, I've got a problem with my body. I need to change it. So you're right. There is a, there is a step change. This is, this is different to other psychological disorders. And it's been brought up, um, and, I don't. I know this is kind of brought up uh, in a derogatory manner, but with, uh, let's say, anorexia. If a girl comes in and presents with anorexia, and she says, I don't want my body to be so fat, even though she's only 80 pounds. And the doctor would try to treat the mind and not the body. But with gender, for some reason, gender, the doctor is more willing to treat the body rather than the mind. So, so, so there's two things, aren't there? You've got to care for the body. The body yes. needs food, it needs fuel. So there is care of the body. But you're also, like you say, trying to treat the mind. And I guess what you do is you, you sort of empathise with the patient. They think that food is poison. You see, uh, try and understand what that's about. But you neither collude nor do you argue in a way you're trying to understand why whilst also standing up for the fact that although it's awkward and you may feel uncomfortable your body needs food 
So, so the, the, the therapist and psychiatric team, they've got this sort of job of trying to understand where the patient's coming from and empathising with that, but not going along with it. They also have their own point of view. And again, I think we, we often talk about anorexia by comparison, that in this instance, we're sort of agreeing with the child quite early on, and we, we, we go on to say, we're not against all transition. I think it's a problem for under 18s. Not all against all transition. For some people, that's the right way of, you know, that's going to be their best way of living a life. But you, you are trying to interrogate what's going on in the mind of the individual as your first, in your first instance. And as Sue said, the strange thing about this JID service was the whole of the Tavistock's hundred year history was in psychological approaches to psychological problems. I suppose in, because uh, if, you know, you, you said it's a sort of contentious comparison and I suppose that if one tries to understand it from a different perspective, then if, you know, the WPATH guidelines and, you know, leaflets and charities say, here's the best treatment, affirm your child in their chosen gender, take puberty blockers because that lowers their anxiety and gives a pause for thought, which is what the Tavistock Jids used to say, um, although there was no evidence that it ever paused for thought. It was always a continuum onto cross-sex hormones. But I suppose then, you know, as a patient, as a young patient who's read about it or heard about it, as a parent who's worried and heard about these sort of threats of suicide and, you know, you've got to do the right thing, that if the WPATH are saying this is what you should do and that's what clinicians are then carrying out, then in a sense, the reason I think it is more, what should I say, uh, attractive, or that's the wrong word, but the reason it's more quickly gone to is because actually I think when you're trying to work psychologically, you are under huge pressure to sort of, in a way, be able to bear with the young patient the distress that they're in. You know, so I suppose if you make that mm -hmm. comparison, if someone's hugely suicidal, if you thought there was a magic pill, you just go, look, here, just take that, it'll all go away. And I think that that's the sort mm -hmm. of seduction of the model, if you like, but I think that's why everyone's gone to it, because actually, the way in which we work and other clinicians that I work with are, are, are similar and, and there are accusations against this model. But what we're trying to do is really get alongside how the patient is feeling. So it's not to say, don't be ridiculous. You know, of course, you can't imagine that or think that. But it's to try and let them know that you're kind of with them in thinking and, and trying to take in what they believe and what they're experiencing, but whilst trying to open up other areas of their mind that, that, that they're probably terrified to do or just can't do because their mind always kind of works in a certain way and just cuts things off or blocks things off. So it's a long answer, but I suppose what I'm trying to say is I think it's tough to do that as a clinician 
as a therapist, um, as a parent, you know, and, and even as a patient, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's got that attraction to it, really. It's easier to give in or to go along with it if you believe that's going to be the best course. Yeah. I've been thinking, um, and this conversation's bring to my mind just some thoughts about maybe it's the case that society had gender dysphoria before um, the upsurge in gender dysphoric presenting youth, like this huge uptick. And what you were just saying about um, the anorexic thinking of food as poison, it's in common dialect, in common pop culture, masculinity is called poison. It's called toxic. And femininity is called toxic as well. And there's a lot of contention between genders. And it seems like our our society, and I know Britain is different than uh, the US, but it seems like we've been trying to rethink gender. And that might have made it just a field ripe um, for uh, planting these ideas that this is a poison that I want to run away from, or I want to escape into the feminine because from the masculine or, or the vice versa. And that's a lot of the stories that I've heard, especially with the detransitioners and going through their thought process of why they were captivated by gender. But it seems like because the professional um, class is so susceptible to this as well, it must have been something in our society that kind of built the groundwork for this cascade of presenting and then affirmation in a way. Does that... Mm. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think there are various different forces coming together. There's the sort of move away from the paternalism of the medic. There's a change in the culture of the, the patient's relationship with the medic that you, you don't just accept what the medic's offering. You've got an, your own ideas. So there's more of a sort of equal relationship. You're not, you're not fitting, fitting in. Um, I think there are things like uh, preoccupation with changing the body. I mean, um, you know, uh, cosmetic surgeries have gone through the roof. You know, there's a sort of idea we can, you can become the perfect body. You can, you can control your, your body. Maybe we could prolong life. You know, there, there are all sorts of beguiling ideas in medicine that we can sort of magically change the human condition. You know, you're born either male or female. You're going to live 70 years, give or take. That's your lot sort of thing. And I think, that, so I think those sorts of things are around. I also think there's a sort of confusion because the thing is we are moving away from the idea that a sort of rigid devolved um, divisions between the sexes but it's it's almost as if we've got preoccupied with sort of rigid views of the stereotypes like you say on the one hand yeah. toxic masculinity on the other hand barbie dolls um in actual fact in part of the sort of liberty that we've represented you say well you could express your sexuality in all sorts of ways but it's another matter to start interfering with a healthy body one would want to think very carefully before you do that but flexibility in the way you express yourself tomboys feminine um you know uh, f feminine blokes no problem what what you know hmm. but it's as if this sort of ideology in a way i think you're right it does touch on all sorts of things a long-standing battle between the sexes 
A long-standing battle between the generations has become very unpleasant in this area. Well, you get a lot of, you know, there's a lot of difference between the older and the younger generation in terms of should it, people be able to do whatever they want to do with their bodies? A lot of the younger people say, well, absolutely they should. Who, who are you to stop them? A lot of older people would say, well, you've got to be very careful. You could cause a lot of damage doing that. But it, I agree with you. I think it is really dividing the sexes. I think it's dividing the generations. Mm -hmm. and, and also the doctor-patient division too so it, it's a division of authority too authority versus Absolutely. liberation maybe that's right yeah yes it's kind of a perfect of, storm then any anything goes yeah thing. you can do anything you want yeah i think along with that i also think and and these are these are just our ideas aren't they the sort of yeah. more we work in the area and the, and the the sort of uh kids you come across but that there seems to be something quite fragile about a lot of the kids I see. So I'm not, that's not a blanket application because again, you know, our people screaming at me, but you know, if one works for a while and kind of, you know, unpacks things a bit, you start to notice that their minds are quite fearful of certain things, of looking at certain things, of thinking certain things, of even feeling something towards others. You know, there's a sort of sense that it's that there's something really dangerous in that. And and so I I can't help feeling that something about the sort of early parenting styles that, that I think has shifted in society as well. The idea that we sort of and I'm gonna sound like an absolute dinosaur now. But, you know, the idea that parents should be their kids' friends all the time and kind of, you can have anything, darling, and it's all going to be okay. And and I, I really think that, that, that there's something about the early model of, of helping a kid, and it's not about sort of toughening them up and kind of, you know, that sort of attitude, but it is <clears throat> psychologically about going, you'll be okay. If this is a bit distressing, you're going to be okay. You know, and kind of modelling something, which is you can't have a perfect life and sometimes there is rain but the sun comes out again as the old song goes but you know I think that kind of there has been a shift in that and and with teachers as well I think teachers are a bit more worried about their authority with kids and so I think there's so many things you know picking up on what you're saying that have created this kind of perfect storm hmm. um, and it's sort of it, it, each generation, if you think about it, needs something. When I was a kid, you know, my brother's friends all grew long hair. And my dad thought that that was the worst thing possible. You know, you all look like louts and, you know, rock and rollers and it'll lead to trouble. But each generation, it's, you know, I think maybe there, there's a way in which you know, this group of kids. And, and again, I'm aware for everything we say, there'd be someone screaming, you know nothing, this has always been around, it's just we've never been able to say it. Yeah. But it's just years of working in this area, you can't help notice the shift. So it, it seems like you guys have, you, you've mentioned several times in the conversation that you already hear the people screaming, so it seems like you're acculturated to being embattled at this point in time. Maybe we can get in, into that a little bit, but I, I want to drill down into first principles with psychoanalysis or analytic psychology and uh, kind of shift from the gender topic, which is all the rage, but 
like what is mental health? What is the foundation principles of that, or like at least the compass that you guys use in order to to ascertain what this work is really about? This is good because our views on society, we're, we're not sociologists, you know, we're, we're amateur sociologists. Our job is actually sort of studying the individual mind. So Sue really described it a bit, you know, in a sense, you're trying to develop, um, you call it an ego or a mind in which you can see yourself um, in relation to the external world. So we call it reality testing. You know, I've got a view of myself and I think that I'm seen like this and then you bump up against the external world. I think I can ride without my uh, stabilizers on my tricycle and, you, and your, your dad goes, no, I think it's, it's too early. You fall off, you graze your leg, you come back, you start again. So you're all, we're always in a dialogue between who, how we see ourselves and how the world sees us, sort of external reality which we don't control. And hopefully you're sort of internalising, uh, if, you, if you're lucky to, enough to have parental figures who help you, as Sue was saying, develop some resilience, which is being able to manage the difference between the way we think we are and the way the world sees us and what we're capable of doing. So you have to deal with disappointment and loss. And sometimes you get excited because you master something. There's an anxiety that you're going to be overwhelmed and humiliated at times. And one's got a mind that is capable of dealing with those sorts of confrontations, as it were, between ourselves and the external world and the feelings that generated. Mm -hmm. And, and one's learning as one's go as along about the changing nature of how we see ourselves and the, the fact that the world isn't always as we see it. So that's a sort of, that's what you're helping. And Sue's talking about sort of resilience in the child. You're trying to build up that sort of resilience and capacity to deal with these conflicts and anxieties. And, and to have curiosity. Yeah. Because, because it, as part of the sort of reality testing as well, what you do then is instead of having a more omnipotent or what you could term a completely narcissistic view of the world which is I want it to be exactly as I want it to be and I imagine it should be is that then you develop a part of your mind that can go into conversation that can sort of have a space in a sense to not only you know, be doing this thing, but to kind of be observing yourself doing that thing. And what I mean by that, that's the part of your mind. And again, we, we have words for these, but it's the part of your mind that kind of keeps you kind of living a reasonably good life, you know, tells you off if you're being trying to get away with something or, um, you know, keeps you being fairly honest and then really nags away at you if you know you've done something wrong. So that would be kind of reasonable mental health. But if you have um, sort of a, a part of your mind that is really harsh and critical, then you're into trouble because, and, and it can develop partly innately you know, kids are different. Mm. Some are very much like that from the word go. They're mm. sort of really worried about upsetting mum mm. and dad, whereas other kids couldn't care less. 
but but um, but then also the environment as well creates mm. a kind of kid who's maybe had very harsh parenting or parental models, and so then they have that combination of kind of like everything they do oh don't you're going to be in trouble and don't do that and oh I should never have said that and beating yourself up or obsessing about it you know and that's how you see the sort of development of certain areas of sort of what you call mental ill health mm-hmm. that, that something like that becomes really hard to manage because it then affects your ordinary relationships mm. and how you kind of get on in the world as sue said not to reduce everything it's not no. all parents it's a no. mu- you know we don't really understand it's, it's multifactorial a recipe. It's a recipe. With all sorts of social familial genetic components but mm. yeah i think that, that one of the things that that we see in this population is what sue's described as a sort of let's say a very harsh judge Mm. saying this is how things should be that's yourself and the world and a very weak ego says yeah okay because we all got this judge that makes assessments of things we've got an ego is a sort of dialogue in which we say okay that's how ideally it should be that, that this is how it actually is the problem comes when you've got a part of you going this is how it it should be. It's got to be. It's got to be. Mm. And there's a there's a sort of echo that goes, oh, crikey, it's, I'm wrong. You know, I'm the wrong shape. My nose is too big. My, I'm too aggressive. I'm too much. I'm too butch. I'm too feminine. I'm too, do you see what I mean? And yeah. the, the ego needs to sort of hold its own in saying, well, okay, the, I get what I would ideally want to be, but this is how I am, or this is how the world is. It's turning into a theory lecture now. I bet you we should never ask. No, no, I love theory. I just wanted to interject an analogy or maybe a metaphor and and bring in the boogeyman of technology just with the thermostat. Like with the thermostat, the ego or the superego is like it's too warm, too cold. And then the ego goes over and presses a button to lower or raise the temperature. Um, I bring that up because you guys might have more difficulty doing that come this uh, winter. But also with technology, with the identity embedded and projected through the screen, you can change all these different things. You can change your sex. You can force people. You can, um, you have like a temperature control for how society sees you. And especially if you get involved in activist communities where they say, it's kind of like this Mephistophelian um, bargain where like, if you say that you're this, we will make society agree with you. And you go around and and you affirm us and we'll affirm you and then we'll find allies and we'll be involved in this kind of mitigation of, uh, you know, again, temperature controlling the world. So the ego isn't really developed when it's when it doesn't actually have to resist the cold or uh, come up with uh, people saying, no, I'm not going to look at you the way you want me to, right? And then without that development, then... You're spot on. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And and the thing is, so we'd say this has been around for thousands of millennia, you know, that that if you're fragile and various different areas, it's not globally, but if you've got a fragility, you avoid certain things and certain people are going, no, I'm not avoiding that. I'm going to stay, even though I've been dropped by the coach, I'm going to, I'm not leaving the football team. I'm going to go back to fight my place. 
and some kids would become depressed and others a bit paranoid and feel angry and etc etc <clears throat> and in your mind you can imagine that we got rid of the coach we've got another coach that loved you or you know in the team I'm going to move to they'll pick me and I'll be the I'll be the star striker so all of that is you know very normal as you say the game changer is with technology you live in a world in which you can just go well I'm just sticking with the people who agree with me I get rid of everybody every all the antagonists we can live in a silo I can call myself Geronimo and imagine I'm 23 you know you know what I mean they 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 change their profiles and so and some people they develop you see when they've got this idea of a faulty them which they is their problem and then they develop an avatar of what they want to be like a sort of like a preferred self you see okay. now that's the ideal that's the superego you're describing yeah. you believe you can actualize it you see so is is there um research or language for the, when the superego goes uh, nuclear, when the superego runs the show and doesn't have to deal at all with outside reality or that intercessor of the ego, like when, when the superego just gets to control the universe, it, I guess it, what comes to mind is like Greek myths about hubris or uh, Icarus or something like that. It's, is, is there a complex that... In, well, in, there's, a, there's, a, there's a guy called Ron Britton who's written about the destructive superego which takes over the personality and causes a depression. Um, and he wrote a lot about narcissism. But I suppose if you completely with, withdraw into that sort of that powerful world where you control everything, you become psychotic. Most people move in and out of stages where they feel they're all powerful and then they fall flat on their face and we've got to face reality. But, but um, you're moving into the terrain of a sort of, of a, a psychiatric condition when you completely lose touch with reality. You know, in, in terms of um, patients who suffer from paranoid schizophrenia, most people's delusions are of them being Christ's advocate or Muhammad. King or, it's or... no one normal. It's not John next door. It's an all-powerful, godlike figure yeah. who controls things, exactly as you said. Like the realm of ideals or something like that. You become a god or a demigod or a superhero. Kind That's of thing. it. Yeah. That's right. Mm. But all of us move in and out of those stages. We all yeah. have these moments of thinking we're, you know, um, super powerful or whatever. So one thing that I picked up on, um, kind of like like the compass or the guiding principle, is it sounds like like a reasonableness, like like a, a reasonable relationship between the superego or that judge and the ego, and I guess the outside world. I don't know if that's the id. I guess just the darkness. And I like the idea of curiosity. I think that curiosity is an underdeveloped concept in our uh, society, but it's the driving force of. Every, everything novel and everything destructive as well. Um, do you guys have anything more to say about cultivating curiosity or just the, what that phenomena is in the human experience? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think if we were thinking about the era of, of, of the kids um, and the young people that we're working with, that, that, as I said before, what 
I often encounter is, so they have what I call a statement feeling. So they would say something like, I hate this. Let's, you know, some aspect of their body. So I say, okay, um, you know, can you tell me a bit more about that? And they would say, well, I just hate this. And I say, yeah, so let's think, because those are strong words, aren't they? Sort of this hating of something, and then you've mentioned a bodily part, you know, or some aspect of it. Usually the breasts or menstruation or penis or hairy legs or, you know, facial growth or something. It's sort of something specific. But then there is really a block on them thinking more about it so although they're so used to saying i'm uncomfortable being a female or i'm uncomfortable being a girl and i say okay can you tell me some more about that well i just don't like it i yeah okay so there's sort of something you don't like and it's something about being a girl but it, you really can't get behind it. So that, I'm just giving those as kind of clinical yeah. examples of what it's like in the room when you're, you know, trying to. And, and so I suppose what that tells me is their mind in some way either can't or won't or is defended against or is afraid of being interested in their own minds, being interested in what's going on in in their worlds, their internal worlds, as well as often in their external worlds. So again, you might say, you know, I could you tell me about your dad? Well, what? <laughs> you know, like, well, just you describe him to me. Well, he's my dad. So, so I think I'm just sort of trying to mm. give a sense of where their minds often just won't go beyond. Now, I, I kind of think that my task, in a way, is that I'm really interested, because when they tell me something about themselves, I'm really interested in what that means for them. And for each kid, I think it means something different. But it's trying to put together little things that they might talk about, other throwaway remarks that they make, and trying to create something that might get them interested. And, you know, it, it, it often works. I'm not saying it's a magic cure, but it's, it's amazing how something, you just sort of ignite something mm. for them that goes, oh, okay. And I think they're interested that I'm interested. As well, so we have somewhere to go with it, and then, as I say, as long as you're really supportive with it, and and uh, you know, you're not either just going along with what they say, but you're also not getting into an argument with them. You're just exploring with them. Then, so that I don't know if that unwraps I, the curiosity. I, I wanted to be more. poetic and say you're yawning in the key of curiosity. Yeah, you're doing this infectious kind of opening up. Right. That then they, oh, I can open up too. I can open up too. And I did want to make a footnote just within my own yeah. very limited research and, and uh, interviews is that even when somebody changes that body part that they dislike, that they hate, if they didn't do the work to actually figure out why, then once they change that body part, it just goes to another body part. Like the, the, the obsession with changing a body part, it will just travel around the body and it's endless because there's all these different um, things that you can do. So just pure medical affirmation without like a really patient 
opening up of the dialogue with the body will just continue to be answered with more and more medicalization. That's what I've seen. You 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 get it with um, body dysmorphia. You know that you you get someone who's obsessed with their nose. They get operated on, and then they get the nose they think they want, but the problem still remains. And because the problem fundamentally is not their nose, it's a, it's the way they see their nose and what it represents. And you know, and then sometimes they go after the surgeon, you know, for 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 operating on them, but. Um, what I was listening, listening to Sue, you see, I think that, that point about the fragility, it doesn't allow that you've got some certain beliefs, you know, this is the problem, there's the solution. And then the therapist is going to sort of start asking you to question those beliefs. It's, it's almost like you're pushing, they feel they've got rid of their doubts and their confusion, and you're sort of pushing them back, back into a position where things are much more fluid and chaotic. And um, and I think I think the curiosity is often a threat for that reason. Is that, and, and in a way, the curiosity, as Sue says, it's in the therapist. You're curious about why they can't look at things from point, different points of view. They may feel that's a you know that that it's your job to be curious about them because they don't feel they can be. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think the other thing is it was a, even going back into the 1980s, talking about the, the, um, the this old population of mainly males post 18 transitioning to females, small numbers. We got there was meant to be one percent of these transitioners made an unsuccessful transition, but we used to get a steady stream that came through casualty and basically often have a sort of comorbid problem quite you know personality disorder uh, one was a sort of violent criminal they believed that this was going to sort out their problem post-operatively it hasn't done what they hoped it would do so they then become very disappointed sometimes suicidal or very angry again with um, Charing Cross it was because the medicine hasn't worked you know and and like you say there hasn't been a, a thorough enough investigation mm. of what this is all about yeah. but there's a there's a I've just because I'm being a bit devil's advocate here because of course what I also keep in mind is certainly back in the 80s and even now in certain cultures you know uh, people who transition don't always have an easy time. Um, I sometimes don't think it's as dark and awful, certainly in this country now, as it, as it used to be. But, you know, for sure they experience some discrimination. So people always argue that the poor mental health outcome is due to society's attitude and not an internal thing. But I read an interesting tweet uh, about two or three days ago. I'm hopeless at Twitter, otherwise I would have answered. <laughs> but I don't really get how to get a tweet to carry on on Twitter. So unless I can do it in 20 words, I'm lost. But um, I, a, a, a parent said, my daughter, I can't remember if it was daughter or son, but anyway, my child, you know, wishes to transition. But I've noticed now she's being affirmed at school and her friends are all calling her by her desired name and gender. Her anxiety seems to have got worse. 
And my understanding of that, it's going back to your question really about the kind mm. of the, the levels of, of where it comes in at in the mind. I think that our mind does, you know, even these some of these kids who are sort of very cut off from their minds, that very often there are these moments when doubts come back in and they try and get rid of them into mm. others around them and yeah. society and, you know, it'll all be okay and persistence and consistence and I know where I'm going. Mm. But I think with this kid, for example, what I would say to that parent is that there are probably pockets of doubt in her own mind that that then when she hears other people doing this thing, there's a part of her own mind that goes, I'm not quite sure about that, or is this a damaging thing, or, you know, some kind of more anxiety-provoking question tucked away that then she has to get rid of for herself as well. That that would be, I mean, obviously I, you have to meet and work with someone to really understand it, but I think that that is something that does go on. That these, And that's why I think that sometimes that issue about um, misgendering someone or, you know, if someone gets furious because you've used the wrong pronouns or you've called them he instead of she, is because I think they've had to kind of protect themselves and get rid of doubt so that when you make that mistake and you see them as the he they are rather than the she they believe themselves to be, I think in that moment, you see, you've put that doubt back into them and then they're furious and they kind of project it and get rid of it again back at you and it's all your fault, it's your confusion. <laughs> so I think it's quite a complex process that yeah. that is being managed in the mind of those who transition to get slightly sociological again um just a couple weeks <laughs> you know, ago we're no good at this <laughs> i know i know but it's just interesting uh, a couple weeks ago or maybe a month ago there's a green party in canada and the computer misgendered a trans person and oh, yes. they complained and the entire party has just bowed down and and issued all these apologies because there was this glitch in in the computer and it it seems like this cascade of affirmation of of I don't want to say it's a delusion because I'll get in trouble. But if if we're all kind of like it's it's there's there, we have coping mechanism coping mechanisms when our imagined reality doesn't line up with actual reality, and that can come across in anxiety, depression. But when an entire group gets on board on affirming something that doesn't align with reality, then there's like a mass formation of the same kind of anxiety. The coping mechanism is then projected or assumed by the entire um, group. Um, it just, it seems kind of dangerous and unstable for everybody to try to affirm a delusion. And then how do they react to when reality pokes through? And that happens more than just the gender topic. It happens in, in our society constantly. Yeah. I suppose we all hate being the idea of feeling we don't count, we don't matter. We, we all, you know, that's a, that's a sort of human and universal anxiety. You don't count. I don't see you. And in a, in a sense, it's as if this person said, well, I, you know, the computer hasn't seen me. I've been persecuted. It's caused a sort of breakdown. And then it's as if there's a, you know, you do get these contagions where everyone sort of buys into it. Well, then, as you were saying, well, then we've got to change reality. 
you know you do count we do see you as you see yourself and there's no allowance for any other point of view you know um and and i think that goes back to sue's point isn't it you okay you you want to be seen in a particular way but you've got a bit of knowledge that it's not so straightforward and that's your that's your achilles heel and you want that gone eradicated and what's amazing is that is that everybody agrees it should be gone you've got to be a hundred percent seen the way you want to be seen no other points of view no other you know mind looking at you going that's an odd you know person you know look a bit do you, do you see what i mean you've got mm -hmm. to get rid of it all mm -hmm. and that can infect an entire it can infect an entire profession. I mean, the the APA, a lot of these associations are going full bore into a number of different um, social justice issues. Gender is one among many. But it seems like once the, the governing board or the profession itself acts that way, I don't see how psychoanalysis uh, or therapy can remain stable and do good work if it has any point of having to deny reality or affirm um, something that doesn't align with reality. So Absolutely. how do you challenge that? It's, 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 well, we've, we've, we have in various different ways. Um, yeah. And it's very, because you rely on structures, for instance, you know, um, in the, in the sort of ban on, you know, what's being called conversion therapy, you know, you're not allowed to sort of explore things in a, now, you've always got to be careful. You, you have a duty to be empathic and caring to the patient. You're not there to be sadistic by saying, this is the reality, you need to face it. That's not your job, as, as we both said. Um, but in, in a way, it's like the sort of structures which we allow, which we rely on in our policies and registering bodies that would say, yeah, but being curious questioning beliefs, wanting to know what's behind the beliefs, this is, this is therapists doing their ordinary work. Um, but there's this sort of political interference right the way across the board in this area so that some people feel anxious that they may, may be the wrong side of the patient and be accused of conversion therapy. Um, you know, in actual fact, we think that we're trying to convert the patient into someone who's interested in themselves and their minds. That, that, that's what we're guilty of, you know, and we understand that's difficult for some people. It's difficult to look at yourself. Mm -hmm. And one's got to be supportive of that process because it can be very painful. But, um, yeah, to have a policy that says curiosity and investigation is you know, could be seen as persecutory, well, that undermines the well, structures that should be supporting us in doing what we do. Yeah, um, yeah. no, it would be. And, and it's hard not to be at times pessimistic about the future. I mean, not just an analytic future or... A, uh, but, but I think, you know, I kind of really wonder where this is going like whether we will reach a point where there will be no such thing as reality anymore you know that there's so many different versions of it and 
you know, we live in this. What was this phrase we heard the other day about a metasphere, that you can live in a metasphere or something instead of reality because that will all be so much nicer. But I, I kind of, I, I, yeah. But the thing is you, you can't get rid of reality. However, we all, we're all a bit persecuted by reality. I mean, unfortunately, in the next 20 years, I won't be here. I don't like it. I don't like the idea, but it's not going to be down to me and my mind. It won't be my choice, you know, and it wasn't my choice that I was born a man. I was born a man one's got to sort of come to terms with certain realities about who we are and the physical world that we live in, you know. But I agree, we're acting and thinking as if we are what we believe or we are what we feel, like the physical world that we don't control should be sort of banned or got rid of or something. I don't know what your experience (laughs) has been, Benjamin, in the conversations that you've had, but but in in the conversations that I've had with sort of transition people who are staying where they are and feel reasonably okay, I tend to find that they're the people who are pretty well adjusted to their expectations of mm. where they are yeah. within their transition. They yeah. kind of know, you know, more about, in a sense, who they are and who they're not and kind of accept there are certain limitations. And they seem to be the people who are living, in a sense, that most, for want of a breastfed, authentic life. Mm. You know, they're kind of living something that suits them and they can kind of rub along with it. And I think it's yeah. it's more the idealistic kind of it's going to be perfect transition uh, kind of train that that is the worrying one, particularly yeah. giving that message to kids because whichever way you go, and that's what we always yeah. keep saying, although we get accused of it. Ultimately, we believe the work we do will benefit someone when and if they transition because they will kind of understand more about what they're about and, yeah. and why they're doing what they're doing and how they feel about themselves. So so to me, it's it's good work whether you're going to transition or not if you're interested to do it. But not everyone wants to do it, and that's fine. You know, we don't – we're not forcing anyone to come and see us. The uh, the squishy part of your, um, of your business or of your um... – your profession is that like you brought up empathy and objective or like there's objectivity and empathy too. And you yourselves and your entire profession has to balance this very subjective internal sphere with what we call reality. Like, and, and it, that there's ambiguity there. You've, you've said several times, we don't know. We don't, we, we, we really don't know. So you guys have to work within doubt with curiosity and that can that can have uh that can lead to your industry or your profession being open up to radical claims or being open up it doesn't really have antibodies to say no we can't do this yes we can do that because you're always everything's tentative everything is trying to tune it to the unique circumstances of that individual and if these idealists come through your your profession then uh it your profession doesn't seem to have legs to stand on if you get like really radical pushback. Um, but th- that's kind of a harsh take, but I'm just wondering how does the profession stand up to attacks from ideologues? Well, I, th- I think it's not just psychoanalysis, which is squishy, as you say, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's you know, you don't do a lot of measuring of things. We, we sort of, our main 
body of knowledge comes from clinical observation. There is some research, but it's clinical observation. Um, but the thing is, medicine has sort of fallen for it. There's all sorts of beliefs starting to, you know, one of our sort of problems that we've come up against time and time again is the politicization of the clinical environment, the stopping of research, the stopping of discussion about different ways of seeing things, you know, the the persecution of the ideology, you know, there is only one way and you shouldn't be curious of this, you're just trying to pathologize people. That 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 politicization has interfered in lots of different ways, in two, in, including WPATH, including some of the um, bodies that oversee the medical and clinical professions, and yeah, that's very that's very worrying. Um, and you know, and why I'm bringing in medicine is there's a lot more that is measurable in medicine, like you know. You can see, you know, what is this term? Assigned male at birth. You know, what do you mean? That, you know, this is biologically a boy. No, it's not the nurse assigning mm -hmm. the person at birth, like it's a perception of the nurses. It's a sort of biological fact. Here's a boy. Well, it's observed, isn't it? But then the proof is in the pudding. Right. Even to <laughs> you know, say observed, it's yeah. like... Yeah, well, that's what you say. You oh, do you say observed? observed. Okay, yeah. fine. Observed, yeah. observed, observed yeah. I don't mind. Coercively. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it all becomes up for discussion, you know, as if yeah. you say there's no biological reality. And, and historically, um, the medical profession falls for... Uh, you know, kind of moral panics, like satanic panic was big in, in my country in the 80s and uh, yeah. with the overuse yeah. of lobotomies, electroshock yeah, therapy, yeah. a growth hormone. They were trying to make girls shorter and boys longer. Yeah. You know, there's these weird human ideas that get up in the up in the mix. We get envious of the surgeons. The surgeons can really do things. You know, they can change <laughs> things. You can take someone's heart out and put it back in. in. In psychiatry and psychology, the mind isn't like that. It's not a physical thing. You can't actually go, there's the mind. You're dealing with a sort of complex organisation that we don't really understand that's dealing with the abstract. So as you say, you know, we, 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 we struggle, A, to have an impact, B, to justify our existence. And every now and then we go for a sort of, this is it. This is the solution. Lobotomies, ECT, antipsychotics, even psychoanalysis. And we, we mm. go overboard. CBT, you know, it's going to cure all, all known ills. And it's always over-determined, our belief in these things. And then we come down to a sort of our rather depressing position of going, we don't really understand very much and we can only help to a certain degree and da 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 it reminds me on, on, a, on a grandiose scale of that, what we were talking about, about the superego, that ideal world, and then the ego, and then reality. Yeah. And, and the profession's also going through theory and testing, <laughs> right? Yes. With, yeah. with pretty uh, staggering consequences when it, when it yes. goes full bore. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And I suppose, I mean, yeah, it's, it's important, isn't it? Because I feel that earlier on, we, you know, we were talking about sort of pathology and the, and the sort of the various levels of what goes wrong in the mind. And of course, 
there is always this contention that argues, um, you know, this is not a mental illness, you know, gender dysphoria or gender identity, wishing to transition, it's not a mental illness. And I think, again, it's one of those things where we don't yet understand. We don't know the full science of it. There may be all sorts of things that we have yet to learn about why people feel this way about themselves. But, but the idea that you disaggregate entirely sort of mental health, the mind, from the body and its physical presentation, when so much of what the mind is thinking and feeling is the very thing that's informing that. You know, it's like a, a feedback mm, system, isn't yeah. it? And, and, and that's who we are when we come into the world. You know, from the very moment we're born, we're sort of feeling it through the body and experiencing it through the body, and then the mind's developing along the same time. So I think... I've lost my thread, really, but I suppose it's just that thing of, of saying, you know, it's not to say everyone's mad and crazy. There's so many different ways in which we don't understand this yet, and there may be explanations that we come to learn. So, yeah, but I really kind of resent the... That I, I, when I say resent it, I, I think it's dangerous to, to ignore, you know, some of the comorbidities or some of the sort of coexisting challenges that these kids are having in their lives i think it's just wrong to kind of go well that's nothing to do with the gender we'll just do this bit first and everything else can you know come along behind psychiatry's always fallen for that fragmenting things up you know you could get the personality then there's you used to get people coming from the institute of psychiatry and they were always looking for pure cases of depression because they wanted to do a research study on depression I said, they're all the files. There's literally 5,000 files. <laughs> Try and find one. <laughs> Try and find someone who has just depression, just depression, doesn't have a personality disorder, some sort of trauma in their background. They do not exist. No. We, we are a complicated mixture of all sorts of different things. You can't divide the mind up into your gender, your depression you this you that it it doesn't we like to think we can but it's a fiction we are a complex picture of moving parts the the perniciousness of just the idea the concept of gender and how it explodes it's a spectrum and it can be i'm this gender i'm that gender i'm this gender it even though it it's been exploded into mean anything or nothing it still has a psychological weight to it. it there's still and it might just be because it's a fad right now but it just seems like gender itself and i think it because it is tied to to sex and it is tied to society and culture it just has a it just has a luster to it or an enchantment to it so i i kind of forgive our society yeah. for being so kind of intoxicated by by it and, and and pushing it so far but at the same time it's become it's it's not really a good thing there's a lot of bad um aspects to it but so within your discipline was gender a concept was gender dysphoria like actually a thing or did it just kind of have to be made up post hoc to describe certain behaviors like depression was it was it ever a thing oh. I suppose I would say, I don't, I don't know that I know the answer, but one of the things I would say is that identity 
is a big thing in psychoanalysis, in psychology, in any area you look. I mean, who we are essentially is, you know, the business we're in, isn't it? What we're about, what we're feeling. And I think that before gender identity, if you just say identity, and I honestly feel that a lot of the kids, again, that we're seeing, I think it's it's not to focus so much on the, the gender aspect of it. It's the identity part. It's finding themselves in the world. But I think it's a modern thing. I think Freud mentions, I think Freud mentions gender maybe once in 24 volumes. I mean, he talks a lot about the body, talks about sex and all sorts of other things. Sexuality. Sexuality. Polymorphously perverse um, is his phrase. It's identity <laughs> that he mentions once. I, can't, I don't even, I find it hard to think that he would even mention gender. I do think it's a modern idea. The sort of idea of your this thing separate from your body, you know, I, I think it's a recent phenomenon. Um, but it basically and, means identity. It's just uh, gender is just another way of cat. I mean, because they've made so many different genders now, it's just it's it's a stand-in yeah. for a personality or an identity. So it might be the case that we don't really understand what an identity is. Or there's a lot of people who are struggling with that and using gender as a canvas to be able to concretize something that as an identity, and it's never really concrete. 100%. See, going back to Sue's description of what we try and do is that you're always trying to look, there's the presenting problem. It's, 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 this is old psychiatry and psychoanalysis, nothing new in this. Here's the presenting problem. All the attention is on this. And you're trying to think, what's behind it? Who is this kid? What are they struggling with? Do they get on well at school? Are they the favourite? Does mum prefer their older sister? You know, are they worried about upsetting people? What, what, who is this kid behind the kid comes and goes? It's all about the gender. You think, right, okay, well, fine. That's how. That's what you feel. But what? What's? Who are you? See, even take the sexuality out of it. Who who are you? Who is this kid? Because I think that's the that's what we're trying to do is see behind the presenting problem, not to dismiss it, but to say it's part of a bigger picture of who you are. Well, I mean, even even just that. Sorry, even just that allows them to be more than their problem by just allowing yeah, them to discover right. and talk about and that's express right. other parts. Then they're like, oh, I'm not just that's this right. thing. So. Sorry yeah. to interrupt you. Oh, well, no, no, but I, I, um, I'm just thinking about you because I'm going to get sort of more uh, esoteric here. No, what's the word? But anyway. Um, dangerous territory. Dangerous territory. Yeah. No, I ha something interesting happened at the weekend. So we were invited over to Poland and we talked at a conference about our work. And we, it was a very well-organised conference, about 750 people, and they'd set us up with a translator in our ear. So in the last part of the day, the, it was being carried out in Polish. And I noticed that these other uh, sexologists were talking about, uh, sometimes the translator went gender dysphoria, and sometimes they were calling it sexual dysphoria. Wind forward a bit. I'll, I'll get to my point in a moment. I can see you frowning, but 
wind forward to that evening and um, where our book, Gender Dysphoria, is being translated into Polish. And we met that evening, the people who are doing the translation. And, he's, and I said, how's it going? He said, well, we're struggling a bit because there's no word in Polish for gender. And I thought, oh, when I got back on the plane, I thought, that's interesting, because obviously when a woman sitting next door to me and I'd had the translation, it's now proven that, that sex is not a binary. She was talking about kind of gender is not a binary, you see. So I disputed it and I said, you know, as far as I'm aware, and I've spoken to a few experts, you know, sex is a binary with a few uh, DSD, but, uh, you know, intersex minority. Um, but um, anyway, I, I kind of was sitting on the plane and thinking, well, that's interesting because if they don't have another word for it, because our in our language, in our cultures, hasn't it? The two have become very confused yeah. and they're getting things sort of under the gate mm -hmm. because it's gender, not sex, and sex, not gender. I was thinking, well, I wonder how it's going to unfold there. And I've got no idea, but... It reminds me of that... How are they uh... going to describe it? Eskimos having 50 words for snow. We, we've created 50 words for this thing called sex, right? The, the foreigners come over, they're like, what, what are you guys talking about? It's just snow. It's just snow. But again, you see, I, I, I think this thing, I, I don't learn the new language. Um, I tend to stick with, I'm a dinosaur, I tend to stick with pounds, shillings and pence, you know. Because I... I sort of feel there's just an interference with definitions all the time and words and you're caught out, in, you know, now you're out of touch because you're using the wrong word. And in a sense, it's like a sort of interference with your capacity to just, just sort of perceive things and define them. We do a lot of that, you know. We like to know that, you know, this is... The, that person's the queen's dead and you're alive. You know, this is a man, this is a woman. <laughs> it's very important for us to be able to have some agreed way of describing things. And it seems to me that there's mischief in this confusion of definitions. The confusion now goes out. It goes from the individual who I think is confused about themselves out into the external world and we're all confused now because we've got the wrong term or the wrong phrase or whatever that, that goes back to what i was saying about like the the precipitation of this rise in gender uh, distressed youth was probably precipitated by a societal gender dysphoria but that confusion it causes yeah. a feedback loop feedback loop feedback yeah. loop is that, yeah. I don't want to dip into Jung because you guys probably like hate Jung. I don't, I don't understand like the whole thing, <laughs> but like it, you just brought up mischief and chaos and, and the, the quality of chaos that runs through society. And, and, uh, that's a sociological question again, but, but how we can, how we can counter that. Well, we, well, my first analyst was a Jungian and Sue works with a Jungian in seeing the parents. So, you know, um, the, the, the thing is, I think um, there is something about, I don't know, an intolerance of confusion. We, none of us like it. We like to know where we are and our sort of beliefs help us organise the world into a manageable set of structures. Don't they? You know, we couldn't cope with 
having no beliefs and sort of chaos. Um, so our beliefs are very helpful, but they're they're also they are just constructions, aren't they? They they and they they're not the same as facts. See, I would, isn't it? And and we've got facts and beliefs muddled up um, because I, I think there's a, an, a, an attack on uh, on uh, sort of reality in a way. But I think it's it's it's, it's all to try and. Um, I think externalize the confusion that we feel threatened by. That's how I put it, you know, that, and maybe it's to do with, you know, the, the sort of sociological confusions, you know, everything's up in the air, you know, we don't have the patriarchy, men and women, you know, there is more equality um, in, in society in various different ways. So things that our previous generations would have felt, well, well, this is the way we see things and it's very structured. It's no longer the case. There's much more fluidity. And maybe we we haven't come to terms with that yet. We feel a bit threatened by it, although we're very liberal and accepting, et cetera, et cetera. But there's some way that we're, we're sort of, I don't know. Well, it might be the case that it... it, it the lack of those social structures being rigid is not the best place for a child to develop. It might be great for us as liberal, yeah. mature yeah. adults, but to grow up in that causes the kid needs a little bit more stability and we're loath or yeah. wroth to do anything stable because we think that that's authoritarian and oppression, yeah. you know, to, right. to define anything in a way. I think, yeah. I think there's a lot in what you say there. Yeah. I, I, I mean, they're, they're old, you know, they're sort of old, they're nothing novel about the terms, but I think kind of the boundaries of good parenting actually help a kid feel safe. And I do think what has been attacked in all of this is very often the parents just sort of being able to establish themselves as the yeah. people that are guiding their kids through childhood. And not all families, not all parents do it the best way. You know, we're, we're all, you know, flawed. But um, mm. that, I think, is one of the most fundamental issues of this. I really feel that that, that has been attacked. And, and the chaos, I think, will ensue. Yeah. Uh, not to get political, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I know are. Par parents, aren't, parents aren't perfect, but do you think the government will raise kids better? You know, I mean, isn't yeah, there a trade-off? Exactly. Trade so, um, so could you guys plug your work and how people can, like, read your stuff and learn more gender dysphoria gender dysphoria can you see that I don't know. kind of a therapeutic model for working with children adolescents and young adults by susan evans and marcus evans wonderful cover very colorful so yes i thought it was i think we thought it rather helped um kind of describe the chaos um i think that sort of around in there Getting a wee bit Jungian there on your cover. Jungian's good at branding. I'm easily influenced. <laughs> and so, so that book's for uh, not novices and parents. It, it, is it? It's written. It's written with therapists in mind. Okay. But we we've tried to, and a lot of people have said we have written it in plain English. So if you're a, a, a parent or a teacher, and and We've also got a glossary of psychoanalytic terms. So we've, we've really tried to, it's like an introduction to psychoanalytic thinking in, in this area. Mm -hmm. That's, 
but we we it's it's um uh, it's um been read even by someone who had gender dysphoria who who left us a really nice review kind of saying this book genuinely has helped me with my gender dysphoria Hmm. Um, which was a really satisfying thing to read, and then I happened to, I happened to mention this to a colleague, and they they knew the person personally, and they said, you know, they are definitely now trying to get every every clinician in their area to kind of read it because they feel they've really been helped by it. But you know, again, it's contentious because you know some people might describe it as um, transphobic, transphobic, or you know. But I mean, we. We're trying to come from a good place with our clinical experience yeah. and we're trying to just offer, we're not saying it's got to be, we're not saying we know everything, but we're offering some ideas around what might be going on with some of the kids. And, and, and methods to approach that and tug it, tug it open, open up the... Trying to understand, so it's not a sort of how-to manual per se, it doesn't say step one, step two, although I'm trying to write a paper at the moment that's a bit more around that, sort of saying what you might ask, but it's trying to open people's minds up again to the curiosity, you know, to say think about this have this in mind are you kind of is this something that might be going on um you know so yeah i mean i th i think because we'd say as clinicians there's a sort of there's a, a problem in terms of the sort of approach the medicalization is a big problem with children and um and so that's at a high level and the fact that psychiatry you know, who's sort of gone along with things without really examining the fact there's there's very little evidence, there's very little justification for affirmation being applied across the board as a policy. You know, so all sorts of evidence of sort of ideological, political thinking, not clinical thinking. So that would be us as psychiatric practitioners um, feeling you, that yeah. we've we've let the side down here. Yeah. This is not a sort of, we're going to stop everybody transitioning, it's not. This is a sort of attempt to say, let's think about what what are the things that drive transition? And that with the hope that, you know, if we think about these things and people can make their own minds up, because your point, it's good to be informed about why you're doing something. So you, you, you're not caught short when the final result is not what you expect. <laughs> so, hmm. yeah. So, and we're going on, as Sue said, we're going on writing, we're going on learning, we do a lot of teaching, like I say, you know, in various different places. So, it, it, it was absolute, absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you guys. I, maybe someday we can have a sherry. I don't know what you drink, how posh you are out there, or, or beer, or something like that. Where are you in the States? I'm in uh, Western Washington. Uh, so okay. All the way on the, okay. pretty close to the coast. Yeah. We've got, um, we've got a trip. Well, we've got various different trips. One of them is to do a, a sort of West coast of America, but maybe we could swing by. <laughs> I'm going to, yeah, keep me, keep me informed, keep me in the loop. So we can, we can meet up. I can oh, take you guys. Or you can come to London. I, I do need to get out to Turf Island as they call it. I have a lot of, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Over there. yeah. Yeah. No. Very nice. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank nice you so meet. much, guys, and have a, yeah. have a good evening. Have I a good really evening. enjoyed. I have to say, I listened to your um, 
your podcast, the one you did with the detransitioner, male detransitioner. Um, uh, I think he was it Richie. Richie, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tulip yes. Richie, yeah, yeah. Yes, and I thought some of what he was talking about with you was just fascinating, like so interesting. Um, and really, in some ways, good to hear because I felt like, you know, he's talking to many of the things that we're kind of trying to link up with. And mm. uh, but I thought, what what insight he's got, and mm. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it was really mm. interesting. Yeah, he's doing really well um, speaking up, and people he's making people listen to that yeah, side of the story. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievably brave of him, and and not easy to do. When, when will this come out? Air. Um, I, well, I, I'm, I'm kind of backlog. I'll let you guys know. Is there a good time? Yeah, is there a, pre- a preferable time? Probably within a uh, week. No, no, so. no, no, no. There's no pressure. There's okay. No, no. Pressure no this is great you. content. So, so it's good for <laughs> probably take while. Well. Sorry. Do edit, edit us nicely. Any dinosaur comments, please we remove. We talk a bit too much. <laughs> and, and also the, some of the sociological stuff, I think we're way out of our depth. Uh, uh, so be kind to us editorially. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said it, not me. Um, <laughs> we confessed. No we coercion confessed. here. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but that, it's really nice to meet you. Yeah, Thanks absolutely. for everything you do as well. I think yeah. you're fascinating the way you kind of thoughtful about this area and very measured. So yeah, it's good, good stuff. Really good to meet you. Absolutely, absolutely. You guys okay. have a good night. See you. Thanks. Bye. 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 bye.